Thank you, Laurel. Thank you, Sarah, for sharing with us. Thank you for going. Let's pray together. Father, our, our creator and redeemer, as we uh, start a new week, uh, we ask that you let ourselves not be deceived by that we can rely on our own health and strength and prosperity, that all these gifts come from you and that uh, they are yours to give and they're yours to limit and to, for us to be uh, relinquishing ourselves to you. Father, we hold them in all con continual dependence upon you, the giver. Uh, we put them back into your hand, dedicating them to your service in our mind and our bodies and material thing, our material things, our influence, everything we give to you. They are your to use as you see fit. So, Father, we ask that you speak uh, through our words and our thoughts, as the, as the psalmist says, that they be acceptable to you. And we are grateful and amazed that you have even chosen us to, to use us to proclaim your good news, proclaim your kingdom, and to do what and to participate in what you desire to accomplish in creation. Father, this morning we also want to do a pray a special prayer for um, Ken and Kathy Aplan as they're on their way to Africa and ask for smooth travels for them, safety. We thank you that you are going to use uh, Ken and his work and Kathy and Kendra's there with them to with him to. Um, uh, speak through you and to bring uh, good news of your kingdom to um, to people who may not have ever heard or just to encourage those, our brothers and sisters who are there. So, Father, we ask you give us the grace to follow in the way of Jesus. May your name be glorified in everything we do. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We are continuing on in our, our uh, life in the Spirit, hearing God for normal people. And uh, we are going to be looking at... Um, Let's see, today, that you got to get knocked off here. Okay, <laughs> hang on. There we go. Reading the Bible with the heart. Uh, last week we talked, we introduced that, and uh, we talked about kind of that story to the, uh, the disciples. Uh, uh, on their way to Emmaus, and Jesus, after the resurrection, appears to them, and just how he, uh, how he deals with them, and he, he begins explaining the scripture. He doesn't just say, hey, look, it's me. He, he arrived, and he, and he started to explain the scriptures, and uh, Luke tells us that they said, uh, we're, we're not our hearts burning within us while, we op while he opened the scriptures to us. Uh, there's a, a, a ritual that uh, I think a lot of, they don't practice it as much as we used to in our churches, a lot of the traditional churches do practice this ritual. It's, uh, it's a ritual when um, at the end of the service, the preacher or the vicar or the priest or whoever it is kind of stands at the, uh, at the entrance of the church and then all the people kind of file, file out, you know, and shake, their, shake the preacher's hands. And those of us in the business, we call that, that, that ritual the glorification of the worm. Um, like this guy, like, Come by and I would say, oh, yeah, it was a nice sermon, you know, great, great, great. That's, a, that's the, the, the glorification of the worm. We don't really do that much here, but uh, thank goodness. But um, they say, they tell us in seminary that there are always three sermons on a Sunday morning. There's the one that, that we prepare, there's the one that is actually delivered, and then there's the one that the people hear. 
And that is so true. And I have several times people come up to me after the service or with a text or with an email, and they'll say, oh, you know, what you said really touched me. Really, I really, uh, thanks for ministering to this. And they'll go on to explain what I said that really moved them and kind of changed their life. And I'm going, I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, I did not say that. I did not mean to say that. Uh, you totally misunderstood me, or I totally did not explain that very well. But <clears throat> at the same time, it touched them, and it was transformative. And so I don't get concerned about it. I'm not even saddened about it. In fact, I'm a little relieved about it, because then whatever I say, I mean, God can still use. And I can realize that, that, um, that the reason they heard what they heard was probably more powerful than anything I could have said or anything I thought I might have said. And so I feel like that's kind of a relief for this, that the Holy Spirit can use that. And I'm not against that ministry. Who can be against that ministry of the Holy Spirit to do that? And I'm very grateful that he can do that, that he could touch people's hearts and with something that I never even thought of. And I find that very reassuring in a way. And it's because this person, these people, have listened with a wide-open, beautiful heart. And that's how we hear the Word of God. I almost think that's more important than what is said. How we listen is at least as important as what is said. And I think that also applies when we are reading or hearing the Word of God read. That we listen to it and we approach it with a beautiful, wide-open heart. And that's how God speaks to us. That's how these things, this is what we need. The first thing we need is this beautiful, wide-open heart. We usually approach the scripture in, in a couple of ways. Last week I mentioned that we need to approach it by reading it with our mind and reading it with our heart and then reading it through the lens of Jesus. We kind of approach the scriptures either as a painting or as a window, and both are necessary. We approach it as a painting, like if we were looking at this masterpiece and we're fascinated by it and we look at it and we kind of, we want to understand it and see what it is. This is a, this is a Monet and I just put that up there because my wife loves Monet. And, uh, and she's told me that when you look at a painting, it really helps to, to say what you see out loud. That when you're in a museum, you just describe what you see out loud and that really helps and it really does. And I think the same is true with the scriptures. We come to that as a painting and we look at it objectively and describe it and what it's saying, what the truth is that, that the scripture is saying, the background, how he says it or how it's said, uh, what do they say, what are the purposes, what's God's purposes, what is he saying about God's plans, what is he saying about God himself, what is he saying about us, what has he done for us, those kind of things we look at and that's very, very important. But we also need to look at it through a window. And that is, we take the scriptures and we look at it as a window to see Christ on the other side. And we also look through it to see the world on the other side, all of our relationships on the other side. And we use that scripture as a window to see reality. And that's what I want to look at this morning, is looking through the scripture as through a window and how we see the world and how we see it with admiration and beauty. Uh, there is some danger here, the danger of when we look at it just as a picture, we have this kind of default mentality, especially in modern society, this default mentality of consumerism, that we think that it's, it's, um, it's just for us, that this is a, a good practice that we need to just do 
for us. And we can't hardly stop doing that because it's kind of a, like I said, in our modern society, it's sort of a default. We want to know how it will affect us. So sometimes we see it as this emotional guide that we see the Bible to, to give us comfort and safety, maybe give us a, a healthy self-esteem. There's nothing wrong with wanting safety and comfort and a healthy self-esteem, okay? There's nothing wrong with that, but it does not give us meaning and purpose in our life. Or we might see it as an owner's manual, that this is the owner's manual for successful living, and we just want to open the Bible and want it to tell us what to do. Just tell me what to do, and I'll do it. And that is super easy to do. We think we want to get a successful life. There's nothing wrong with a successful life. We think it's just going to tell us exactly what to do so that we will have a moral life. There's nothing wrong with a moral life. But if that's all we see it as, it's just, a, just an owner's manual to tell us what to do. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. Give me a list. It's much easier to follow a to-do list than it is to follow this messy relationship that we have with God, maybe with other people. The list is much easier to do. And so we get that, but what it does is it steers us to that righteousness of the Pharisees. That all we are is just wanting to obey, and that's good enough. It steers us to that. We just want this righteousness of the Pharisees instead of this fullness of life with God. And that's what the Bible is wanting us to do. We drain off. We drain off all that richness of, of dwelling with God and reduce it down to this to-do list. And yes, it is much easier to do that than it is to follow a relationship. Or we look at the Bible as a textbook, that we just look at it to amass knowledge and to amass skills and, and uh, to amass accomplishments, and we think it's going to be good, great because then we can be superior to other people, or we can tell people what they, what they really need to know, or we can tell people what, uh, what I know and how I got there and all this, and we just think that it's a good place to be. And that's it's, uh, it's just a textbook for me to get knowledge and maybe to impress people. And so we read and we study and we memorize. And studying and reading and memorizing is good, okay? It is good, but when pride gets in the way, then it doesn't make the migration from the head to the heart. And Paul says that we all have knowledge, but he says, but knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. That's where we head. So we kind of look at it as a textbook, and nothing else. And so we read and memorize. And, and in 1 Corinthians, he, he tells us that this is what pride does. It's just all it does is puff us up. But then he goes into Romans 2, and he's complaining about the hypocrisy of the Roman Christians there in chapter 2. And then he goes for the juggler. And he says, because of this hypocrisy, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And I read that verse, and I just go, oh that God's name would be blasphemed because of me. That's what pride does. And that's where we're at if we let that get in the way. And you may have some non-Christian friends where you're talking to and you may say, yeah, that's exactly what's happening today. That God's name is blasphemed because of us. And that cuts to the quick if you want to love Christ, if you want to follow him. And so there are some consequences if we only look at the scriptures as a painting, if we only look at the scriptures as the picture and we just want to look at it objectively. There are some unintended consequences. It separates the written word from the living word. 
The Bible is to point us to the living word, but we end up putting the written word over here and the living word over here, and they end up two different things. And we end up focusing maybe even more on Paul than we do on Christ. But we read everything through the lens of Christ. We read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. We read the New Testament through the lens of Jesus. We cannot separate the written word from the living word. We have a temptation to further my own agenda. We, want to have, we have a pet issue. We have a pet project. We have a pet, pet doctrine that we want to further. And, and that's, that's what we want to further. And so we end up using the Bible just to further our own agenda instead of God's agenda. It creates a distance between me and God. We get further and further apart instead of more and more intimate if we just look at it with the mind. And our Bible study turns dry and dutiful. And yes, I have experienced that too, where it just becomes like taking medicine, where every day you do it because you have to do it. Now, there will be times where it is dutiful and dry, and we push through. There are times where we, that just happens. It happens to all of us, that it just becomes dry, and you do it, but you keep doing it. But if we learn to listen for the word of God, if we learn to listen to his voice in the scriptures, then those times become fewer and fewer and fewer and far between. Because then it becomes rich and it becomes life-changing and life-transforming and it becomes much different. But if we just look at it as the mind, it will become dutiful and dry. And yes, there's uh, temporary satisfaction in that. You know, there's, there's some temporary satisfaction in doing this. We kind of feel good about ourselves. Um, since the pandemic started, uh, we kind of got into, Sue and I have gotten into this routine, just this one of those little things we have to look forward to, right? On Saturday morning, I always go walk up to Pine Street Bakery and get pastries and bring them home. And then we have some time usually on the porch or at home, and we just eat scones or um, chocolate croissants or cinnamon rolls or whatever, and drink coffee and just talk for about an hour, an hour and a half or so. It's a very nice time to do. That's great. But if all I lived on were scones, <laughs> that is no substitute for good, solid food. It's nice, but it's not good, solid food. And so we do have to stay immersed in these things, immersed in this. And the, and the spiritual path along the way can... can um, become enriched through this but just because I stay immersed in my duty and in my dutiful taking my medicine doesn't mean that I will become more Christ-like it does not mean that I will become a more loving person that has to come because we hear the word of God that we 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 get away from the I, I need to control or to manipulate others by what I know or what I hear uh Bonavent, Saint Bonaventure who was a, a disciple of St. Francis, he said, we all have three eyes that we, uh, that we interpret the world with. We have physical, we have body eyes to see the physical world. And we have mental eyes that we use to see reason. But he also says we have spiritual eyes, eyes of the heart, so that we get spiritual insight. And we need to learn to read the scriptures through those spiritual eyes. The psalmist in 119 says that, that he says, open my eyes, Lord, so that I will see the riches of your word. That's where we get changed. That's where we get learned. That's where we learn to be like Jesus. That's where we start to let our guard down 
and to let the flow of the Holy Spirit move through us and change us and transform us. We need this balanced approach of head, heart, and lens. We can't just do it with our head. If we do it with our heart, then we got all this needless misunderstandings going around. And we do it without our soul. We don't let Jesus change us. We have to have this balanced approach. So we have to look at it through a window as well. This is how we see the world. This is how we see Jesus. And this is how we train to hear God's voice. That if we can train ourselves to hear God's voice in the, in, where it's easiest, in the Bible, then we will start to learn how to hear God's verse every, voice everywhere. We start to understand who he is, and we start to get immersed in what he says and what he's like and what Jesus is like. And before we know it, we start to hear God's verse, voice in, in all of creation. All of creation becomes a mouthpiece for God's voice. We will hear God's voice in a conversation with a friend or a colleague, even somebody who doesn't know Christ. We will start to hear God's voice in between the lines of the newspapers. We will start to hear God's voice in a book or in a novel. We will start to hear God's voice everywhere, and all of creation starts to, starts to be his mouthpiece. But we have to be immersed in the place where it's easiest to hear God's voice in the scriptures. His voice has reverberated all through history that says, I want to be with you. From the very beginning, he created us with, I want to be with you. But he also gave us a choice. And the choice is, do we want to be with him? That's the question we ask ourselves when we open the scriptures. Do I want to be with him? He has said that from the very beginning. And we have decided that we didn't trust him. So we will disobey. And when we did that, we broke off. We said, no, I don't want to be with you. This is not some, this life with God, this, this life that we want to be with God is not some doctrine that intellectuals argue about. It's not some rumor that's only some people experience through some supernatural beings. It's in every one of us. It's our as our life unfolds, as our life unfolds through our lifespan, we become wanting to be with God. It is a life with God where we, the realm of the kingdom of God dwells in us and we are in him. He is the initiator of this relationship. He is the pursuer of this relationship. He is the guarantor of this relationship, but we get to choose. Do we want to be with him? He wants to be with us. And that's the whole point. That is the whole point of why we immerse ourselves in the scriptures so that we can be with him, so that we can have a life full with God, that we can be like Christ. I can read through the Bible every year. Okay, and A lot of people do this, read through the Bible in a year. And I can enjoy the reputation I get as someone who reads through the Bible every year. And I can enjoy congratulating myself because I read through the Bible every year. But if it doesn't change me, it doesn't matter. I would rather have 10 verses over a year that really become substance in my life and changes my heart than just have every word in the Bible flash before my eyes over 12 months. I'm not against reading the Bible over a year, okay? But I'm just saying that I would rather have those verses change me and get into me and become substance in my body and in myself 
so that I become like him. That I open myself to the spirit of God to dwell in him, to dwell with him, and this becomes a reality. Let's take, for example, John, 1 John chapter 4. He says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his only, one and only Son into the world so that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us, sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. We can spill that and read that, but we need to sit with it. We need to sit with love and say, say, what does this mean? How does this affect me? Is this true? What is my life like since this is true? And, and how shall I speak and act because this is true? This is what we're going to be looking at in the next week or so, is the how to, to do this how to do it practically. We're going to look at holy reading next week, something that has just passed through the test of time that, is, that has been done since the Jews uh, were called out of Egypt and has been practiced all through church history. It is, it is past the test of time that we do this studying and we hear him personally, this life-changing power, and that we read, uh, that read slowly and attentively and imaginatively and prayerfully and I am convinced that if we do this, that we read slowly and attentively and imaginatively and prayerfully, that will change our lives. And we will, have, we will be with God. What we prayerfully dwell on the ways God has loved us and how God has loved the world. And we have this good news of this progression that starts with this communication. And then it moves to communion with God. And then finally it moves to union. Jesus said that his words are spirit and life. And when he, did, when he spoke his words, he, he literally imparted his life to the people who were listening to him. And when we look at his words, we, we see what he's taught, we see what he said, and then you add in all those events of, the, of Calvary, the resurrection and Pentecost, and he is imparting his life to us, literally. I take this seriously, I take it literally. That this isn't just figuratively, this isn't just metaphorically, this is really true, that he will impart his life to us. And Paul goes on and on and on about us being in Christ and Christ being in us, and I take that literally. That we are in him and he is in us. I can no longer talk about mine and his, I can only talk about ours. That is us in union with him. That Jesus' word is spirit and life, and he imparts it to us. And this is this great mystery that, Christ, that Paul calls it the great mystery of, of, the, of the ages, of Christ in you. And then we can say, as we moved in that direction, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He, we can also say with Paul, for me, living is Christ. There is a literal union with us and him. It is the good news of the kingdom of God that is available to all of us here and now as well as in the future. This is the good news that we take literally. This is the good news that we take seriously. And we, don't, we can't scale it down. We can't slash it together and just come up with some elaborate plan for salvation or, or the Roman road or four spiritual laws. 
we do that, we're just kind of reducing it down to, to uh, just a bunch of doctrinal truths that we have to agree with that James says every demon believes them anyway. There is something more than that. It is life in him and him in us. It is a union. It is through his action of the word upon us, through us, and in us that changes us, that gives us the mind of Christ. But we have to hear it with a wide open, beautiful heart when we come to the scriptures. Life can be defined as just this power to respond to different relationships. That's, how, that's what life is. And the Bible says that we are dead to God without hope. That when we decided to not trust God and rebel against him, we died. We didn't die biologically, psychologically, we're still alive. But we cannot respond to that relationship. Let me give you a silly example, okay? Let's take a kitten. And you give a kitten a ball of yarn, that kitten is alive to that ball of yarn. He plays with it, he is alive with that relationship with the ball of yarn. But if you try to take that kitten and explain algebra or poetry to him, he's dead to that, okay? He has no clue what that is. When we said no, when we decided not to trust God, when we decided to go in a different direction, we remained alive biologically, psychologically. But we were dead to the realm of God with no hope, with no glory. And Jesus came along to give us this life. And he used a lot of metaphors. One of the most common metaphors is that we have to be born from above. That's the most common, or one we hear a lot about today. He said we are born of water, we're born naturally, but he said also that you have to be born above to be alive to what God is doing and saying. And then we become alive to what he is doing. We dwell in him, with him. It would be amazing if that kitten started composing poetry. That's what it's like for us to dwell in Christ. We become alive to him. We were dead to him before, but now we are alive to him. His words, Jesus says, are life and spirit. And when we take them in, we become alive to God. We become able to compose poetry kingdom poetry but we need this wide open beautiful heart to hear him we will talk more about that next week of how we can do that let's pray together father we thank you for your scriptures we thank you for your word that you have given us to change us father we want to give ourselves to you we want to open ourselves to the flow of the holy spirit to come in us, to cleanse us, to, to give us life that you call eternal, life of peace and power and progress and moral victory because of your word, because you have imparted yourself to us. It's in the name of Jesus, amen.